Hello, everyone. I imagine that you were expecting to hear letters to an American lady today, but unfortunately, our post-production is a little bit behind schedule. It will definitely be out on Thursday. But rather than abandon you entirely, I thought I would share my interview with Ruth Jackson on the C.S. Lewis podcast. Now, this was released on their feed already, and it was then split up into three episodes. So all I've done is I've stitched them all together so you can hear it just in one shot. And also stick around after the interview for something a little special. But let's now kick things off with Ruth Jackson from the C.S. Lewis podcast. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Thank you for listening to the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis with me, Ruth Jackson. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com, where you can also find lots of great articles, resources and podcasts. And you can also register there for the chance to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to the C.S. Lewis Podcast, please do consider rating and reviewing it. But now for today's show. I am absolutely delighted to be joined by David Bates, a Brit living in the US who is one of the hosts of the absolutely fantastic Pints with Jack podcast. David, thank you so much for joining us again. Not at all. This is lovely. This is kicking off my Advent season. Um, we're going to be talking about Christmas. and um, But before we do that, we, the last time we had you on, we were talking about the C.S. Lewis Reading Day. And I wondered whether you could just give us a little bit of a summary of some of the things that went down, how you think it went from, from your perspective, because you were very much one of the pioneers behind the inaugural C.S. Lewis Reading Day. I thought it went really well. We had lots of podcasts and YouTube channels participating and actually didn't find out about some of them until the actual day itself when I went searching for the hashtag and discovered that there were other podcasts that were marking the day as well. Uh, we also had two live streams, one East Coast time in the United States and the other Pacific Coast time. And we had a bunch of content creators on both of them. And yeah, it was really fun You're hanging out with your fellow nerds. And uh, I'm particularly excited because I think there's going to be more collaboration among that group in the future, because I was yeah. getting to introduce a bunch of people to each other that hadn't previously uh, known each other, whereas we would pretty much had all of the participants on our show at some point, but now we could share mm. them with the wider community. Yeah, that's so great. And I guess that was part of your vision behind it, wasn't it? Not mm. only to get people, you know, a sort of sense of community, people talking about Lewis, but also hopefully reach some people that have never really engaged with Lewis, or if they have kind of on a surface level to go a little bit deeper into some of his works that they've maybe not encountered before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Great. Well, let's talk about Christmas. We're in December now. Uh, you're you're drinking whiskey, which is kind of festive. I've got like a semi-festive jumper on. The Christmas decorations aren't up in my house yet. Are they up in yours, David? No, no. When I was growing up, we would do that stuff very, very late, like December 23rd, 24th. Okay. That's when we'd usually go get our tree. And it was, it was one of the things as kids that we were allowed to do at that point. Uh, but right, uh, I've sort of right. carried that through. And also, I'm just kind of lazy. It's like, ah, I'll get to it eventually. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, on that note, what does Christmas look like in the Bates household? Do you have kind of key traditions or or things that you sort of carried from childhood into adulthood? Well, now that I'm married, we're, we're fairly new in terms of traditions at the moment. They're just nasty habits that we haven't quite managed to quit. Uh, but we've got a lot of family around us. And uh, in the Dixon family, which I married into, um, they usually get together at Christmas Eve. That's usually the big one where everybody comes together. 
Uh, and back in my single days, I'd actually usually go to the midnight service on New Year's Eve, but I now have small children. So unless I want to fight a, <laughs> a sleep adult toddler, I'm not going to do that. So we typically go Christmas <laughs> morning. And on Christmas Day, we try and make time just for the four of us, myself, my wife, and our two children. And then we meet up with the wider family in, in the evening. But this year is going to be particularly special because my mother is visiting for the whole of Advent and Christmas. I literally just brought her from Chicago just a couple of hours ago. Oh, that's so fun. That's so fun. Well, let's talk about C.S. Lewis because, you know, I, I, people probably want to know more about you, but this is, after all, the C.S. Lewis podcast. Mm -hmm. I mean, do we know what C.S. Lewis thought of Christmas? What, what, did, what did Christmas mean to C.S. Lewis, David? Well, it's something of a tricky question because it changed over time, depending upon his mm -hmm. age, his worldview, and his life circumstances. So, I'm sure as a child, he enjoyed Christmas like every other child, but uh, a shadow would have been cast over it fairly early on with the death of his mother, Flora, when he was nine. Mm. And after that, his dad sent him to boarding school in England, which he hated. And so I think the, uh, the, the holidays, Christmas, would have been associated with him coming home to Ireland uh, and a, a real mm. reason to, to, to be joyful. Um, but of course, the major event of his teenage years was becoming an atheist which necessarily rather drains Christmas of its religious meaning, or at least its religious significance for Lewis. And um, in his works, he talks about being unable to talk to his father about his loss of faith. And he actually allowed himself to be prepared for confirmation and First Holy Communion. And he just went through the religious motions. And in his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he describes it as one of the worst acts of my life acting apart, eating and drinking my own condemnation. But of course, he did eventually return to his faith. And at that point, mm. then Christmas for him became about the incarnation of Christ. He described it as the birth of Christ as the central event in the history of Earth, the very thing the whole story has been about. And I'm sure various shades of meaning would have been added to Christmas as he met his future wife, Joy Davidman, and brought her family into his home, and including two young boys. Uh, and I'm sure, of course, Joy's death, much like his mother's, would have would have changed his experience of the season as a whole. But we're actually very fortunate because Lewis, he wrote about Christmas a lot in his different works and one essay in particular, which is entitled What Christmas Means to Me. David, you've definitely just touched on this a little bit, but does Lewis explicitly mention Christmas in any of his books or writing at all? It, yes, he does. And when you told me that you wanted to do this episode, I, I went looking and I was kind of shocked as to how many places he does talk about it. And the most explicit mention, of course, is in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. When we actually first see Mr. Tumnus, we're told that what with the parcels and the snow, it looked just as if he had been doing his Christmas shopping. And when Lucy goes for tea <laughs> with Tumnus, time. he tells her that the white witch makes it always winter and never Christmas. And this, this phrase is repeated many times in the story until Mr. Beaver announces that her magic must be failing because he's met somebody. He's seen Father Christmas, a huge man in a bright red robe, bright as holly berries, with a hood that had fur inside it, and I love this bit, and a great white beard that fell like a foamy waterfall over his chest. And Father Christmas then gives the children uh, some presents, and he says they're tools, not toys. But he also ensures mm -hmm. that there's merrymaking. Uh, and, and in a truly British way, 
the text says he brought out a large tray containing five cups and saucers, a bowl of lump sugar, a jug of cream, and a great big teapot, all sizzling and piping hot. Then he cried out, a Merry Christmas. Long live the true king. I mean, who has cream in their tea? I don't know. Americans? I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) But there is actually also an oblique reference to Christmas in the last of the Narnian Chronicles, in the last battle. Lucy says, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than the whole world. And that mysterious line rather confused me as a child, but obviously as an adult, I look back and I understand which stable it's referring to. That was one of the memes that you guys had provided on the Pints with Jack website for the um, C.S. Lewis reading day, wasn't it? And I I, I was aware that lots of people were sharing that because once you understand what it means, that is actually a really powerful line, isn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's actually got echoes of the early church. There's an icon of Mary with the Christ child in her womb, and it refers to her as a, a womb more spacious than the heavens, because the idea that you have this eternal God who is being enclosed in something very, very small. But there actually are also references to Christmas in Lewis's other works. In Mere Christianity, he echoes the earliest church fathers like Irenaeus and Athanasius, when he makes this very bold statement that the Son of God became man to enable men to become sons of God. And he, he unpacks this meaning in his book Miracles, where he says that in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still if embryologists are right, to recapitulate, to, to do over in the womb ancient and pre-human phases of life, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature. So that Christ came incarnate, he, he assumed our nature in order to redeem it. And the fathers would say what wasn't assumed wasn't saved. So this is how we know that Christ was truly mm. human as well as truly God. And in the book of miracles, Lewis goes on to say, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. But as I was doing my research, I found it very interesting that Lewis's view of Christmas wasn't at all sentimental. It was important, but not sentimental. Because in Reflections on the Psalms, he notes that the prayer book used by the Anglican Church for Christmas Day has Psalm 110 appointed for reading. And in Reflections on the Psalms, he says that in this, there's nothing about peace and goodwill, nothing to suggest a stable in Bethlehem. He says the note is not peace and goodwill, but beware he is coming. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Thank you for listening to the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis with me, Ruth Jackson. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com where you can also find lots of great articles, resources and podcasts. And you can also register there for the chance to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast, please do consider rating and reviewing it. But now for today's show. I am absolutely delighted to be joined by David Bates, a Brit living in the US who is one of the hosts of the absolutely fantastic Pints with Jack podcast. Lewis writes about Christmas, not only in prose, but in poetry. And for those that don't know, he always wanted to be a poet and he wrote poetry throughout his life. And he wrote several related to Christmas. The Turn of the Tide is one, but I think probably my favourite is The Nativity. Among the oxen, like an ox, I'm slow, I see a glory in the stable grow, which with the ox's dullest might at length might give an ox's strength. Among the asses, stubborn I as they, I see my saviour where I looked for hay. 
so may my beast like folly learn at least the patience of a beast. Among the sheep, I like a sheep have strayed, I watch a manger where my lord is laid. Oh, that my buying nature would win thence some woolly innocence. But as I mentioned earlier, Lewis's essay, What Christmas Means to Me, uh, is found in God in the Dock, that collection of essays. It's, given the title, it's unsurprisingly one where he's most explicit about what he thinks about the season. And <laughs> he is a bit of a grumpy old man in this, and I love it. I'm here for it. Because uh, <laughs> he begins the essay by distinguishing three things which go by the name of Christmas. Obviously, there is the religious festival, but there's also the popular holiday, which has complex historical connections with that religious festival. And Lewis says it's about merrymaking and hospitality. And this is something that he very much approves of. He likes merrymaking and hospitality. But he then distinguishes it from a third kind of Christmas, which he calls the commercial racket. And this he unequivocally condemns, arguing that it's more about pain than pleasure. He writes, long before December 25th, everyone is worn out physically worn out by weeks of daily struggle in overcrowded shops, mentally worn out by the effect, mentally worn out by the effort to remember all the right recipients and to think about suitable gifts for them. There is no trim for merrymaking. They look far more as if there'd been a long illness in the house. So not only that, he also says that most of this is involuntary. Wow. And people that have seen an episode of the Big Bang Theory, Sheldon suggests something very similar to this. He says, the modern rule is that anyone can force you to give them a present by sending you a quite unprovoked present of his own. It's almost a blackmail. Who has not heard the wail of despair and indeed of resentment when, at the last moment, just as everyone hoped that the nuisance was over for one more year, an unwanted gift from Mrs. Busy, whom we can hardly remember, flops unwelcomed through the letterbox and back to the dreadful shops one of us has to go. And he also complains that a lot of these gifts which we exchange are equals and gaudy and useless gadgets. And he asks, have we really no better use for materials and human skill and time than to spend them on all this rubbish? And, and although he is a bit of a grumpy man in this essay, and like I said, I'm not criticizing him for it because I'm, I'm there for him. I, I will point out that he's not the complete Scrooge because he also says in his letters, mm. I send no cars and no presents except to children. So children can still have fun. I feel like as well, that could have been written today, couldn't it? Obviously, he was writing, you know, a, a, a while ago, but it sort of sounds like that is, it, it's capturing the spirit that a lot of people feel that actually we've gone so far into the kind of commercial Christmas and, and he's just kind of capturing the, the essence of how lots of people feel today, isn't he? Yeah. And, and again, it's not that he's against merrymaking and fun. It's, it's the commercial racket, the getting everyone these obligations and get and parting them from their money and needlessly and pointlessly and in a way that doesn't actually even bring joy and i mentioned god in the dock alongside this essay what christmas means to me there is another essay where we get the very similar sort of arguments made in a fictionalized form it's called xmas and christmas a lost chapter from herodotus and herodotus was a greek historian and it's it's just wonderful very very funny and i want to read all of it but i will just I'll just read a few bits just to give the listeners a sense of what it's like. <laughs> Here's how it begins. And beyond this, there lies in the ocean, turned towards the west and north, the island of Neoturb. And when I first read this, it took me a little while to work it out, but this is Britain backwards, Neoturb. And so for any American listeners, they could call it Akirema. Akirema? That works. Anyway, there is this <laughs> island of Neoturb. They have a great festival, which they call Xmas. And here he spells it E-X-M-A-S. Every citizen is obliged to send each of his friends and relations a square piece of hard paper stamped with a picture, which in their speech is called an Xmas card. 
And because all men must send these cards, the marketplace is filled with the crowds of those buying them. So there is great labor and weariness. As you can see, this is very much the similar ideas he expressed in the other essay just now in a story form. And then he goes on to say, but having bought as many as they suppose to be sufficient, they return to their houses when they find cards from whom, when they find cards from any to whom they also have sent cards, they throw them away and give thanks to the gods that this labor is at least over for another year. <laughs> but when they find cards from any to whom they have not sent, then they beat their breasts and wail and utter curses against the senders. And having sufficiently lamented their misfortune, they put on their boots again and go out into the fog and rain and buy a card for him also. When the day of the festival comes, then most of the citizens, being exhausted by the rush, lie in bed till noon. But in the evening, they eat five times as much supper as on other days, crowning themselves with paper crowns, they become intoxicated. <laughs> but, but here's the twist. He then compares it to another festival. The few among the Neoturbians have also a festival, separate and to themselves, called Christmas. And this he spells C-R-I-S-S-M-A-S. -S so, Christmas which is on the same day as Xmas. And those who keep Christmas, doing the opposite to the majority of the Neoturbians, rise early on that day with shining faces and go before sunrise to certain temples where they partake of a sacred feast. And in most of the temples, they set out images of a fair woman with a newborn child on her knees and certain animals and shepherds adoring the child. The reason for these images is given in a certain sacred story, which I know, but will not repeat. And he then goes on to say that he asks one of these temple priests why they keep Christmas on the same day as Xmas. And the priest replies this, It is not lawful, O stranger, for us to change the date of Christmas, but would that Zeus would put it into the minds of the Neoturbians to keep Xmas at some other time, or not at all. For Xmas and the rush distract the minds even of the few from sacred things. And we indeed are glad that men should make merry at Christmas, but in Xmas there is no merriment left. David, thank you so much for that. And thank you for doing so much research. I feel like everyone now knows exactly where to go to find out what Lewis thought about Christmas. Absolutely. And it's just wonderful that it's very Lewisian. He explains things didactically and then he gives you a story with the same points communicated. Yeah, it's, it's the, the reason and the imagination as he always mm -hmm. does so beautifully, isn't it? David, has the way that C.S. Lewis views Christmas impacted your thoughts about Christmas at all? I don't think they've changed dramatically, but I do feel rather vindicated and validated by Lewis because I'm also not a big <laughs> card sender or present buyer for anyone that's not in my immediate family. Um, actually, growing up, I wasn't a really great fan of Christmas. I played trumpet and I was in the choir at school, which meant that I was playing and singing Christmas carols long before Advent even began. So by the time <laughs> Christmas rolled around, I was sick to death of it. But when my faith really came alive at university, my focus was then primarily on Easter, since it relates to Christ's passion and resurrection. Christmas for me was still mostly Alimobile, very sappy and sentimental connotations. Um, <laughs> And it was only later in my Christian walk that I really started to come around to reconsidering Christmas and the, the really shocking nature of the incarnation. And this actually was from my contact with Muslims at Speaker's Corner in London that really brought this home to me. Uh, and Lewis does actually explain this in Mere Christianity when he explains what a crazy thing it is we're saying, what an audacious thing. He says, the eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that a baby and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. 
David, have you got like a favourite C.S. Lewis Christmas reference or is that like trying to get you to pick your favourite C.S. Lewis quote <laughs> and it sort of depends how you feel at the time? <laughs> kind of, but I think I've got a very soft spot in my heart for the earliest Lewis that I ever heard read to me and read myself and and that's the appearance of Father Christmas. In The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, it says, some of the pictures of Father Christmas in our world make him look only funny and jolly. But now that the children actually stood looking at him, they didn't find it quite at all that. They didn't find it quite like that. He was so big, so glad, so real, that they became quite still. They felt very glad, but also solemn. And this is something I think they did really well in the movie adaptation, the most recent movie adaptation of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, that uh, Father Christmas, he's uh, solemn, but glad. I, I think that the the figure of Santa is really interesting in um, in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, isn't it? Because I know Tolkien took great... Um, chagrin to that you know like a fantasy thing and then you've got like a, another fancy thing coming in and he was not happy about it at all but I read a book um recently by a guy called uh Jem Broomfield who he made a really interesting comparison he said and I definitely have done this I I sort of put Aslan and the White Witch as antitheses of each other um throughout the Narnia Chronicles and in some ways they obviously are but he was saying that actually that there's something to be said for the antithesis perhaps being between the witch and um, Father Christmas, because Aslan mm -hmm. is greater than both of them. And, and you know, the deep magic and, the, the, you know, the dawn before time, and he sort of sings creation into order. And actually, I think that's quite an interesting parallel, putting them towards each other, because when Edmund first encounters the witch, the way Lewis describes it, you kind of think you might actually see Santa. He describes a sleigh and a reindeer and then like flashes of red and, mm -hmm. and things like that. And then in some ways, the, the episode you've described there, David, of, of actually seeing Father Christmas is almost the opposite trick that Lewis plays on us. You kind of think you're going to encounter the witch because you hear a sleigh, you see a reindeer and then on comes Santa. So I just thought that was a really interesting way of thinking about things that actually Santa is perhaps the opposite of the White Witch. Yeah, and it, Lewis makes a similar point in Mere Christianity where he points out that the opposite of Satan isn't God. The opposite of Satan is Michael the Archangel. And he's trying to correct this idea, this Manichaean idea that there is a good force and an evil force and they're equal and then just in a battle. No, no, that's not the Christian worldview at all. God is infinitely more powerful than any evil creation. Uh, but if you want to look for a parallel creation, you have Michael. Uh, against Satan, not God. And I, I hadn't read that book, but I would, I'd endorse that wholeheartedly. I really like the idea that the the opposite of the White Witch is Father Christmas. Yeah, it just changed the way I thought about it. And I just thought reading that book in the lead up to Christmas and sort of thinking about that in a different way was was a really powerful thing for me. I would, I'm hoping to get him on the show, so we will hopefully talk about it in greater detail. And I'll tell him that you that you give your endorsement fully. I do. I'll have to get him on our show as well. <laughs> Absolutely. We can share him. Maybe we could do like a little three-way discussion. I like it. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening to the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis with me, Ruth Jackson. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com where you can also find lots of great articles, resources and podcasts. And you can also register there for the chance to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast, please do consider rating and reviewing it. But now for today's show. 
I am absolutely delighted to be joined by David Bates, a Brit living in the US who is one of the hosts of the absolutely fantastic Pints with Jack podcast. David, th- this may have not been something that you come across in your research, but do you know if we know much about how C.S. Lewis himself would have celebrated Christmas? I went looking for this uh, and I contacted Dr. Hal Poe because he wrote a trilogy of books that go into ridiculous detail about Lewis's life from his early life all the way through to his death. Um, and he pointed me in the direction of some sources which tell us about a Christmas dinner in Malvern in 1947. And so in addition to the traditional turkey, Warney, Lewis's brother, he cooked boiled potatoes, Brussels sprouts, soup and a pudding. <laughs> and I love this bit. They enjoyed two bottles of Burgundy, one of Commanderia and one half bottle of gin. <laughs> so it sounds like they had a great time that day. I wanted to be invited <laughs> to that party. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> Uh, and in 1942, Lewis's future wife, Joy Davidman, she came for Christmas. This was her first time in England. And she came to the kilns for Christmas. And we got a letter that she sent to Chad Walsh where she described it as an enormous turkey and burgundy from the Magdalen College Oxford cellars to go with it. And this is this is very joy when you, when you read the next bit. I stole a wine glass full and put it in the gravy. <laughs> and the Lewis brothers thought this was practically you know, treacherous barbarity. <laughs> until they tasted the gravy. <laughs> and Joy actually returned for Christmas the next year, but this time with her sons. And Douglas Gresham reports being quite disappointed when he met Lewis because he thought he was meeting someone who knew King Edmund of Narnia. And <laughs> he was the sort of scruffy looking farmer person that he met instead. <laughs> that is brilliant. And I guess, you know, you've mentioned multiple drinks that Lewis would have consumed over Christmas, but do you think he would have perhaps had a favourite Christmas delicacy or tipple, or do we just not know? Uh, I know he definitely likes sherry, (laughs) and we have a message, an email from Walter Hooper confirming that uh, he was sent out by Lewis to buy some of this. This is VAT 69. It's a a blended whiskey, which I brought back from England and opened up for the C.S. Lewis Reading Day. And it's uh, it's rather nice. (laughs) Well, there we go. If It's also also lubricating my throat because I have a slightly sore throat. So I'm taking it purely for medicinal purposes. I I wish you could pass it to me through the computer because I also have a sore throat. But (laughs) if anyone's unsure what to drink this Christmas and wants to toast C.S. Lewis, then VAT 69. That's the... That's the tipple yep. for, for Lewis. David, you have previously read bits of really interesting um, commentary on Christmas, uh, both in fictional form, but also in sort of prose form that Lewis has written about. Do you think in light of some of those things that he wrote and perhaps some of the things that he thought, but maybe never put to paper, he would have any advice about how we could survive the festive season, I suppose, in a 21st century context that by the sounds of it, it was actually not that different from the context within which Lewis himself was working and writing and operating in. Yeah, when you read Lewis, he often sounds prophetic. And the things he's complaining about, you read them and you think, oh, if you could have only have got to got to our time and you've seen how much worse things get. I, I think Lewis's main piece of advice would be not to get caught up in the Christmas rush, as he often calls it. Uh, at the essay that I mentioned before, What Christmas Means to Me, he ends by saying, But can it really be my duty to buy and receive masses of junk every winter just to help shopkeepers? If the worst comes to the worst, I'd sooner give them the money for nothing and write it off as charity. For nothing? Why? Better for nothing than for a nuisance. So I think his chief piece of advice would be don't get caught up in that rat race of things that you feel that you should be doing for Christmas. And maybe put Christ back in Christmas. That's the the common expression. 
And there's there's a hilarious story he recounts in one of his letters where his brother had a woman on the bus say, as the bus passed a church with a crib outside, they said, oh, they bring religion to everything. Look, they're dragging it even to Christmas now. <laughs> so so may, maybe Lewis's advice would be to, um, to, to focus on, on the religious season. By all means, be merry, be joyful, but don't feel compelled to uh, do all of the things which society tells you that you that you must do. Do you think he would be a big fan of of the way that churches seem to use Christmas as perhaps a way of inviting people in that would perhaps never darken the church door in in a normal situation? Would he be would he be open to the way that churches are kind of yeah inviting people in in this season? I would think so. I mean, he he, rec- he recognised the de-churching of England in his time, and it's only got much worse since then. But yet Christmas and Easter and often also Ash Wednesday, these are days when people who normally won't enter a church, they will still turn up. Um, and Lewis, with the heart of an evangelist that he always had, he would, he, I think he would definitely endorse the capitalization on those moments when people step into a church and can hear the gospel and encounter Christian fellowship. And I think he'd encourage us not to waste those moments as is, I'm afraid, often done in churches. When you have people turning up who haven't been there since the last major festival um, and that they can still quite happily go through their life and not hear the gospel and not hear the, the call to come to Christ and really grasp the difference that Christ makes. I wonder how... Um... I, like he obviously preached at, at various points. I wonder whether he was ever invited to preach at a Christmas service or, you know, at carol service or something like that. That would be a, a good one. Yeah, I don't, th- I don't think any of the addresses that we've got are at Christmas. I don't know his addresses that well in terms of the details of the dates when they were preached. Um, but learning in war- wartime, that was following the outbreak of World uh, of the World War One, I, I think, or maybe World War Two, um, and. I mean, obviously, his his real classic sermon is The Weight of Glory, probably one of the best pieces that he ever penned, probably one of the best sermons ever preached since one was preached by a, by a carpenter on a mountain. Um, but uh, but that, that's a wonderful example of, of the kind of message that Lewis communicated, reminding us that the, the people that we, that we sit next to in pews, people that we deal with each day, one day they're going to become either something truly glorious or monstrous. And it's our job to um, to help them reach their glorious end. And just to remind us that everyone that we that we work with and play with and talk to, um, that they are the holiest thing presented to our senses. And he says, other than the Blessed Sacrament, these are the holiest things that we see day in, day out. Um, and I think that's a really, really great gateway into presenting the gospel uh, to tell the story of a God who the, the infinite, almighty, powerful God became a little baby in an effort to redeem a fallen human nature, uh, that he humbled himself, as Philippians says, taking the form of a servant and being obedient, obedient unto death, death on a cross, and that this isn't the end of the story, that God raised him, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. Yeah, and he encourages us, doesn't he, that like we've got a better story to tell. And it feels like actually Christmas is a brilliant opportunity to encourage people that in a world that seems sort of 
more and more hopeless that there is a better story. This isn't the end of the story. I guess, as it says, you know, in in the last battle, that this is just the title page of an amazing story that goes on and on forever. David, as we as we're mm. coming to the end of this podcast, I know lots of my friends um, will use Christmas as a time to take a little bit of time off and perhaps do some reading. For for lots of my friends, the Narnia Chronicles is a is a must reread over the Christmas period. Is there anything that you like mm-hmm. to read over Christmas, um, particularly of Lewis's works that, you know, where there's a little bit more time perhaps amidst the chaos, <laughs> but just to stop and think and perhaps reread something that you've read before? Yes. Well, definitely The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Uh, read the book, watch the movie. And it's a Christmas movie, just like Die Hard. Uh, <laughs> the essays that I've mentioned, they're in God in the Dock. So what Christmas means to me and a lost chapter from Herodotus. Uh, if someone's got the copy of Miracles, the chapter, The Grand Miracle, the one that speaks about the incarnation, a great read. And actually, Lewis wrote an introduction to a translation of On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius. It was done by his friend, Sister Penelope, who was an Anglican nun. And both Athanasius's uh, essay on the incarnation and Lewis's introductory essay, both well worth anyone's time. Uh, and also, if I can mention something that's Lewis adjacent, Lewis's friend, uh, Dorothy L. Sayers, she wrote The Man Born to be King. And it's a wonderful dramatization of the life of Christ. Uh, and that's also just a, a great place to start. You can absolutely mention Lewis's friends. We're all about Lewis's friends. David thank you so much it's been so insightful and I wish you and your family a very very Merry Christmas likewise likewise and I'm going to endeavour to make sure that I've got a post up on pintswithjack.com slash xmas where I'll have all of the things that I've referenced um, spelt out and links to the book so if someone does want to uh, dive into some Lewis this Christmas it'll be very very easy Oh, well, that's incredibly helpful. And I will make sure that I have that link at the bottom of this podcast as well so that people can do that really, really quickly. <laughs> but yeah, do do head over to Pints with Jack for anything you want. Honestly, if I ever want to know anything about Lewis, I just go straight onto your website because I know it will be there. There's such a helpful timeline. It's got all of his works. There's loads of really good interviews. I mean, I'm doing myself out of a job here, but um, definitely go to Pints with Jack because there's so much great information about Lewis and particularly Christmas. So thank you so much, David. (laughs) You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson. A very Merry Christmas and wishing you a really happy new year. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com where you can also find lots of great articles, resources and podcasts. And do register there for the chance to win a free book. That's premierunbelievable.com. If you enjoy listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast, please do consider rating and reviewing it. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Hey, everyone. Thank you for sticking around to the end. And here is your reward. As you may know, my mother is currently visiting me in the United States. And one of the things that she's been doing recently is going through all of our family boxes and sorting out all of the the stuff that we've accumulated over the years. And she recently came across a book of published poetry. And one of the poems is by a 15-year-old David Bates. And since we've just finished Out of the Silent Planet, I thought this might be a, a fun little poem for you to hear. It's entitled Nothing But Space. Don't judge me.
Take me back to the earth that I love, with the smog and the greenhouse up above, the singing birds and loud noises, the blaring cars and shouting voices. I miss my family I left behind, my daughter, wife and son. I miss the times we used to share when we laughed, joked and had such fun. There are no flowers or honeybees, no oil-ridden waters or chopped down trees. While I am out here all alone, all I cry for is my home. Of all the planets that I've seen, Saturn's rings and Venus's green, nothing has pleased my eyes but that view of green, yellow, white and blue. Space is nothing but white dots on black felt, with a comet or few or an asteroid belt. Out there you cannot see dog, cat or dove, so please take me back to the Earth that I love. So that was my poem, Nothing But Space, which I wrote when I was 15. And I'm sure I speak for all of us when I say I'm really looking forward to hearing the sonnet which Matt is going to write for his girlfriend.